When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. The World Series is just around the corner, and Podcast One Sportsnet is your home for the best coverage around. Listen to expert analysis and rundowns of each game with The Rich Eisen Show, The Dan Patrick Show, Baseball and Chill, and so many more. Listen to these shows on Podcast One Sportsnet or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest, a frequent contributor to this, one of my favorite guests for many reasons, Sam Vecini of The Athletic. And we go in a lot of different directions here because the college basketball season has not yet started. It's imminent. So we preview some of the big teams, some of the big players, teams to watch, a couple of the big games, especially focusing on the Duke trio. And we also get into some of the other important elements, like the new G League proposal, or change actually, that's out there that had broken the day before we recorded, and Sam wrote a great piece on it for The Athletic, so we talked about that and the potential impact, and then a lot of things on player development. Those of you who are familiar with my episodes with Sam know that we go in a lot of different directions, and that is absolutely true in this case as well. This is a hearty episode. It's a little bit under two hours. And it's brought to you by All-American, the new show on the CW, which airs on Wednesdays. Simple Contacts, you can go to simplecontacts.com slash RealGM or use the RealGM promo code for $20 off your first order, which is awesome. BetOnline.ag, if you go to the website, use the promo code PODCAST1, you get 50% sign-up bonus. Pluto TV, the leading free television streaming service. And TrueCar, great place to buy new and used cars. So as I said, covers a lot of ground. I think the whole thing is absolutely worth listening to. And one thing I will note is that there's a point in it, there's a couple tech issues with this, but it all works out pretty well, where Sam's audio gets a little bit wonky. Don't worry, it doesn't stay that way forever. It's just a brief period of time. So I think it's like two answers or something like that. And we we solved the issue. And of course, I cut all that stuff. But don't worry, like halfway through, there's a little bit of fuzz because it goes away. Okay, that's enough for now. Enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on. Danny, I'm always very happy to join and talk about prospects, talk about development of basketball players in this weird world that we're entering just because I feel like it's changing and no longer is college becoming the dominant track. It's still the dominant track, but like, I feel like that is changing at least. And this is, this is fun. It's it's always fun to jump into this, especially because, you know, I I do more MBA work. I do as much college work as, uh, you know, as much as I can, at least throughout the course of the season. So I'm excited here. It's, it's a great time to talk about basketball, really. And it's still probably going to be, we'll, we'll get into the G League thing maybe a little bit later in the show. I don't want to lead with it, but we can have a discussion on it. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how those tracks evolve. The current reporting is that the, the NBA is not planning to change the age limit any sooner than 2022. And I, I don't like that it seems like that deadline's getting pushed back. But really what that means is there will be elements that change in the structure 
but the kind of the timeline for players entering the league is going to be similar, whether they take different tracks or not. But something that is good about this year for selfish reasons and selfish reasons are important to me because that's what selfish reasons are, is that three of the best players in the 2019 draft class all go to the same university. Yes, uh, Duke is loaded. Uh, I would say, yeah, as you mentioned, three of the top four guys. And realistically, the other guy who's in that top four, Nasir Little, uh, he's playing just a couple miles down the road at North Carolina. So you're going to get to see multiple games where those four players match up against each other. Kobe White is another guy at UNC that I think is going to be really good. So that team's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, RJ, Cam, and Zion Williamson. It's going to be fascinating to see how Duke utilizes all three of those players because I kind of think like RJ and Cam, if I'm being honest, like if I was running a basketball team, I would play both of those guys at the four in college. RJ would dominate at the four. Cam, again, he would dominate at the four due to his athletic fluidity and uh, impressive ability to uh, handle the ball and grab and go and everything. Uh, Zion, I would play him at the five because there's just no one in college basketball that's going to be stronger than him this year. He's just such a freak and, and such a monster. I would play super small. They're built to play uh, as much small ball as any team in the country. And instead, they're going to start Javin Delorier another four. <sighs> yeah, that's unfortunate. One thing that's exciting about this class, while we'll talk about the quality overall a little bit later, is that it at least positionally reflects more of where the league is going rather and and that's kind of random chance to a point i mean last year there were a bunch of centers that got drafted high because they were better players than the guys around them and we've talked about before that there is this balance because scarcity is a is a valuable thing you know getting forwards and all that kind of stuff but in this class you know rj little reddish I don't know. When I've seen Dabuya, I think of him more as a straight four in the NBA than anything else. And so, and Zion, we'll talk about his whole stuff is, is interesting, but at least it's less straight fives. I'll say this, like, yeah, I don't have a five in my top 10 right now. I really like Daniel Gafford. Uh, you could easily slot him in there, but like, I don't have a five in my top 10 right now. Looking through my lottery, I only have two fives in my lottery, even. You get into... The- is the other one Jonte or is it Bull Bull? It's Jonte. I have Bull Bull in the top 20, you know, somewhere in the 20 to 25 range for him. Um, you can make a case that PJ Washington is a five. Uh, I think he's more of a combo four five. Charles Bassey exists. He's a definitely a straight five. Uh, has a very strong reputation as a prospect. I don't necessarily know that that reputation matches up with his NBA potential at this stage. Even a guy like Killian Tilly and, and like Jalen Smith, like these guys might be fives at the next level, but they're probably more four fives than anything. So like uh, you have Bruno Fernando, you have Naz Reed. There are some fives that have potential to be taken in the first round, but for the most part, this is maybe maybe it's like something of a self-perpetuating deal where because we're getting better at evaluating prospects and the way that the uh, and we're changing how we evaluate prospects with the way that the NBA is going, that we slot these players more highly on the board and move guys down our board who don't fit the mold of the current NBA. But I think that it says a lot that we're at a stage where I have zero straight fives in my top 10. And it gets into something you and I actually discussed this off the air about Nurkic and Miles Turner and some other stuff, where for me, the big threshold that is 
a part of the NBA discussion now. And and obviously there are players that can provide a lot of value that do not fit this description. That's important to know at the beginning is really whether a five only guy, and that's the distinction is not somebody who can play center, but who is only a five, whether that player can stick on the court in high stakes play. And so let's talk, I, I often use like the second round of the playoffs and on, and sure you can have, there are lots of players who, who are, who are good, who don't do that. And so that's, if, if we're saying that's the line now, it's never a sure thing, like with Bull Bull or with Gafford or with Jonte that they definitely do or definitely do not. But if you're playing the percentage game, all of that percentage that they're not in that level, it reduces their utility to an NBA team because then you have to think about somebody else in the lineup. You need to use that resource. And remember, teams don't pick in the lottery forever. They don't pick in the top 10 forever. So if you aren't confident that a player is going to fit that description, probably better to take a gamble on a less talented player at a different position. I agree with that. And I also agree with the idea of just positional scarcity being a thing like and also taking guys who are less projecty, I guess, as big men like this is something I've talked about on this podcast many times, but I am not a huge fan of the project big man. And, and like maybe, again, this is something that I miss on at times. You know, Rudy Gobert, I, I discuss this regularly that I think Rudy Gobert is probably my biggest draft miss uh, like in the history of me doing this. It, it was not great, but I'm comfortable missing on bigs in the assumption that I can find guys at that position later. Like even if I miss on Rudy Gobert, it's weird because from just a population dynamic standpoint, you would think that because there are fewer guys that are six foot 10 or taller than guys who are six foot six or taller, uh, it would be harder to find them. And I think that we operated like that for many, many years, but we're at the stage now where really there are probably only like 60 straight centers in the NBA and every college team has straight centers. And often those straight centers are asked to play a limited role in many ways. So it's, it's tricky. If you can find a good one, I still think that there are few things as valuable as getting a really good straight center. Who's great on both ends, but Again, it's it's a moving target in many ways because the NBA is changing. You need guys who fill the role of continuing to you know, stretch the floor and be great divers and roll men toward the basket and providing defensive value at the most important defensive position in the NBA. You, you know, it's it's difficult to sometimes not get trapped in that loop. Like Marvin Bagley, I had Marvin Bagley at number three on my draft board. I still think Marvin Bagley is going to be a really, really good NBA player. Kind of think that was stupid looking back on it, like just kind of Sometimes you get in this bubble and you get into a world where you look at how productive a player is, how athletic a player is, and Marvin's still very young and I think he has potential to protect the rim, but I'm worried about him protecting the rim long term. I actually think to a weird degree, shifting more to the NBA, and there are times when it has hurt my analysis just because I'm watching so much less film of guys, but the part that it has helped is that I'm spending so much more time now when I watch a guy saying, okay, how is it going to work? And with Bagley, my concern was always that I didn't see, other than his second jump, which is wonderful, and I, th- I think that's going to be a huge part of his NBA success should it come, is that I had trouble transferring what he did well to the NBA. And so, you know, there are times that that gets wrong too. Like you talked about your issues with Project Big Men. And 
I've gotten this wrong too. I mean, my biggest miss as of now, and you know, he's young, so it could still change is, is Dragon Bender. And that's actually something I wanted to talk about a little bit because it's the same kind of miss. It's funny because they're such different players that I did with Dante Exum. And so with both of those guys, I focused too much on what they could be and not as much on like kind of expected outcome or, you know, like, okay, if it, if this isn't a top, 30% outcome for this player if they you know if they can't create separation or the passing vision or whatever 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 the attribute is for that player what are they and with Bender I thought oh you know he'll be able to switch a little bit you know he could do that enough and then he can hit threes and he's a capable passer and that kind of thing so he could still be a kind of a the the fourth or fifth best player on a decent team and and I was wrong on that and the other thing that I did is I undervalued that possibility which I acknowledged was a significant possibility in my own brain I was too intrigued by the ceiling and not as understandable that a ceiling is a ceiling for a reason. Yeah, I think that's a hundred percent right. Like in Dragon, Dragon's just such a weird case in general because you look at guys who have come over. He had by far of the last guys in the like last decade who have come over the least amount of high level tape, the least amount of high level playing time of any player because like he didn't play in his world championships the last year because of a shoe disagreement between Adidas and Nike in Croatia. Uh, he didn't really get a lot of time at Maccabi because he was behind a lot of really good players and was 17, 18 years old. You look at guys like Luka Doncic, like Mario Hazonia even, or Frank Milikina. We knew more about these guys like before they came over. Even Rudy Gobert, he got a lot of time because he came over a few years later than what Dragon Bender did at uh, 18 years old whenever he was drafted. So Dragon was just a weird one where I think a lot of people, uh, including scouts, obviously, given the fact that he went fourth overall, just kind of like you said, assumed he could do all of these things when in reality, we didn't know what he could do. You know, and I think that Marvin is a different case than that because Marvin has a really great prep track record. He was the best player in his age from the time he was born, essentially. And, uh, you know, was unbelievable last year at Duke, was first team All-America and everything. So we have a track record of success there. It's just a translation question for me. Like, I think he's going to be good. I think he's going to be like a starting quality NBA player. I just don't know exactly how it all fits within like a successful team with the way the NBA goes, unless he just starts like nailing threes and knocking them down with these. Well, yeah. And Dante Exum was also a good example of the film issue too, because he basically, he'd done some international ball stuff, but he basically the last level of full time he played was high school basketball in Australia effectively. And so yeah, there was some, and I watched some of his Academy games and you could see that, but it was, there were parallels to me watching Mitchell Robinson's Louisiana high school games and seeing like, okay, how much of this do we translate? Because the players are so different and God, Robinson's going to be, it's going to be so fascinating to watch him in the NBA, just the, the jump that he made and, and kind of, I, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of weeks as he, you know, did pretty well before he got hurt in preseason. And we both really liked him in summer league as kind of a proto case for guys making the jump from high school to the NBA again. Yeah, I think that that's right. And, you know, all this is going to change. Basically, all of it is going to be a shifting target. You know what I mean? Because the age rule is going to change. And 
the way that college basketball, the role college basketball plays is changing. And I know you wanted to talk about the way that this rule is going to affect things, but I think it kind of plays into this conversation, right? If the G League does this right and starts poaching NBA players, there's a real chance or like college players, I guess, future NBA players, there's a real chance that like this whole paradigm of really finding finding players is going to shift the way that they're developed is going to shift how much playing time they get against good competition is going to shift and i think we've gotten as a scouting community so much better over the course of the last five years really maybe even two to three years um since we start introducing started introducing analytics since the advent of synergy uh since you know we just have a lot more uh, tools at our disposal to figure out who's good and who's not good. And it's all going to change and it's all going to be fascinating to watch because guys like Dante Exum and, and like Dragon Bender, yeah, they came during that time. But my guess is like those guys probably don't go as high next time, even though I think Dante is a stud. Like I, I think Dante is going to be a starting quality point guard, like maybe even this year. It's going to change because there's just not as much information out there on them and like scouts. The idea that like scouts always talk about or people always talk about scouts as if, oh, they always just want the idea, the potential of things, the what could be as opposed to what is. And that's why all these 18 and 19 year olds go higher in the draft than all of these other guys. That's true to an extent. But I think that because we have such a wealth of information now, it's it's shifting back a little bit the other way to where because we know so much now, if you haven't shown what we think you're capable of, that's a flag now. Like that 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 is a that is a problem. Like if the production doesn't match up to the quality of what we think the ceiling is, that's that's cause to drop guys. So it's going to be really interesting to see how everything shifts as the one and done ends and as this G League proposal goes into effect, everything is going to be really fun. Yeah, we could talk about the G League thing a little bit now and I think it ties in in this conversation also in that we're getting so much more information now and what is becoming a bigger challenge, partially just because we have more to filter through, is putting it in the proper context. So evaluating players in the G League, especially 17, 18-year-olds, it's going to be 18-year-olds based on the rule as written right now, in the G League versus in the ACB versus at in the Atlantic 10 conference, if that still exists. I don't know what conferences are anymore. And I, I think that it's nice that we're getting all this info, we're getting this intel. And also now that a lot of these guys, especially in the US, are playing more international ball, playing more tournaments and all that kind of stuff that are accessible to people like us, either on video or in person, which is which is pretty cool. And so now one of the challenges is, is, you know, it's still the physical stuff. Can they run? Can they jump? Second jump, all that kind of stuff. But also, as you said, what what can they do against their peers? And in now in the G League case, if players take that route, what can they do against players who are not their physical potential superiors, but at least more actualized versions of themselves physically? Yeah, I think there's no question there. And I love these theoretical discussions that you and I have because I don't have them with anyone else. You know what I mean? Like it's, I talk about them sometimes on the podcast that I have, but like not really. And the way that we develop prospects isn't talked about enough in terms of the way that it affects things. Like, you know, should guys be going to three different high schools? How does that affect their development? I think that that's a thing. Like there are just so many different ways that all of this plays a role. 
And I just want to say I appreciate you for taking the time to talk about it with me because I, I love this theoretical stuff. I do too. And and thank you. And I, I think that a part of it that is not talked about enough by us, but more it's because I don't think it's thought about enough on different levels, is the part that entities like the NBA can play in player development at a much younger age. I mean, one of the ideas, I actually talked about this at length once with our mutual friend, Adi Joseph, about the idea that my theory, because basically nobody can train big men at this point, you know, nobody can really do it. They just say, go in the post, like, you know, high, high school coaches, that type of stuff. It's just not a skill set that people have is just teach everybody guard stuff and then have in my world, it would actually be the NBA have big man camps for who have been identified as the best players there. And then you get, you know, whoever, whoever that is, like, I, I mean, an ideal in my head would be like Akeem Olajuwon. And you just have like an intensive week or something like that when, when they're not in school or something like that. And you really work with those guys at that point. And the reason why that's, it, it's, it's kind of an ROI thing because if you can't teach guys big man stuff, then you probably shouldn't. And it's not the entire answer. There are people who know a whole lot more about player development than I do, but I would love for people who actually have the power to affect development to have these conversations too. Yeah. I think that that is definitely something that's happening now more and more. Um, you know, I think he's getting respect more and more. The reason I say that is because Everything that hap is happening right now with this NCAA trial into college basketball, I think it's really spurred a lot of people into trying to change things. Like, look, I think that in a lot of ways, this trial is like BS. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know who's been harmed by college kids getting paid and all of that stuff. To me, it's really hard to prove that it is like a legal thing. I mean, you're, you're the lawyer here. I, you could probably answer that to me. But like... I also am partly glad that it's happening as long as like there are no specific kids that really, really get hurt by it. And like as long as their careers don't take a problematic turn, if that's the case, then I'm going to be disappointed. But I'm also going to be happy that it spurred more conversation from the NBA side of things, because, look, the NBA is the league that holds all of the power here. It's by far the most lucrative. Um, it's what everyone aspires to be in. It is the one who seems most socially conscious of that in the NCAA and is most open to change. But it's something that they've avoided for a decade now, basically. And they started looking at it like in 2016, it felt like, and you know, they're really moving forward with it now. And this G league proposal is great. Like whether or not it affects a lot of kids, I'm still very skeptical of it. You know, I just wrote something for the athletic. It just got published. Like, you know, but it's good that the NBA is thinking about this now because I think it's important for the biggest player at the table to actually sit at the table. And to understand that they're the biggest player at the table and that they don't need to be as beholden or dependent on what other entities decide. They can be the the tastemakers. They can be the change in this field if they want to. And I'm happy that Silver is embracing that a little bit more. I think they need to be significantly more aggressive on it. And then the other part of this from the NBA's perspective that makes it interesting is I think they're getting a better understanding now that Basketball Without Borders is another great example of this, that it doesn't take a massive financial outlay to make a positive impact in this space. And because of revenues are just going through the roof and players get half of it, they're there is money to do this and that they actually receive the benefits. And I think we're going to start seeing that as more of these basketball without borders kids come
come into the league. I mean, there there have already been more than a few, but like Sekou Dembuya is another interesting example of this. We're going to see various guys throughout it. And also this is the basketball academies in Africa and China and everything else. And yeah, that that's the big thing that I wanted to bring up. Like, I love the fact that the NBA is really trying to branch out globally, but you know, we got we got to protect like, you know, I, I don't mean protect, but like we got to we got to talk about the home front here more. Right. And I think the NBA needs to do more, needs to do a lot more here and think about their role very, very differently. And I actually think changing the age limit could be a big impetus there because I think they've used college as a cover and they've said, oh, well, they'll get that development there. And the idea I've talked about this because I have I nearly went into education policy and I've talked about this before in that context of the goal being that kids get out of high school being more kind of the idea of being more fully functioning adults rather than being knowing these specific like facts. And so the idea of like balancing a checkbook or all that kind of stuff. And there's a basketball equivalent of that, which is saying, what do we want as the NBA players to like as a base skill level, knowing what we know about them? What do we want them to be out of high school so that the good ones can actually make it through and not be competitive in their, you know, in, in their first year in the NBA? And I think that they've used college to say, oh, well, now they just have to get to it by the time they're with us. And now they can reach their tentacles down to when they're 15 and 14 and really throw that in. And I don't think the U.S. is ever, for a billion different reasons, going to have the academy system. But the NBA can do something that is in many ways more interesting and and maybe not useful because the academy system, like in European soccer, is has a lot of real real important benefits. But do something that has more impact on player development than they've really considered to this point. Yes, I, I think that there's definitely something to that. Like one of the things that I spent the day talking to people about yesterday was kind of the ways that different sports go about developing players. Like I, I'm really interested in the way that the USTA, for instance, is trying to go about changing American tennis because good God, if you look around, uh, there are not many American tennis players under 30 who are successful on the pro level right now. So they're kind of going about changing things. And you look at other countries, like you look at France with Alset, uh, which is their like National Institute of uh, Sports Execution in Progress, I believe. Um, you look at Australia with AIS, I think you mentioned as well. Like there are places that are doing it successfully and tying it to the pro level. And I think that that's what the NBA is trying to do. I think that they need to figure everything out in terms of how they do that. But I also believe that there's something to it. And I think that it's worth continuing to look down that road. And I'm happy that some of the elements are existing outside of Team USA, because while there are benefits to having a connected relationship, there are players that can fall through the cracks in that context. I mean, you could think about even somebody like Carl Anthony Towns. I mean, really talented player, was actually born in the United States. I can't remember when he played in his first game for the Dominican Republic, but I mean, you you wouldn't want the development to be tied to Team USA because then you have all these all these good players that aren't really getting it. And so I, I get that. Right. That, that was that was a big discussion point whenever uh, the college basketball committee or whatever did their stupid little like committee thing they did this summer and tried to come up with fixes for college basketball. They were like, we'll tie it to USA basketball. That's a great idea. And then you look at it like from a global perspective and like, it's just, no, this is the dumbest thing in the world. What are you doing? Like your international population of basketball players every year is growing and you're trying to limit it by tying like uh, the stature of elite prospects to USA basketball. 
no, this is the dumbest thing in the world. Wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about All American, the exciting just launched series at the CW. It airs on Wednesday nights, and it is the new project from Greg Berlanti, who is the talented producer behind Riverdale, behind Black Lightning, numerous other successful shows. And this is him doing an interesting story in sports. And it's built around Spencer, who is the character is trying to become a professional football player and sees that a potential part of that process would be changing schools from South Central to Beverly Hills High School. Tay Diggs plays the coach in Beverly Hills who is recruiting him. And then all of the complications and elements that, that come into play with that. I also like certain elements of the cinematography in the show are really cool. Like it's always hard with sports to get it to look good, but especially when it's a drama also, but to, to, to play well in that way. And I think they did a really good job there. And the pressures involved from various people and they're weaving a lot of different stories together. And I, I'm very impressed with where it started. I'm excited to see where it goes which is really the testament of the show is not only that you've liked what come, but that you want to hear where it's going to go next. And that has certainly been my experience with All Americans so far. So you should definitely check it out. It airs Wednesdays only on the CW and the CW app. And again, the show is All American. Let's pivot at least for a little bit to the players that look like they could be a part of the 2019 draft class as well. As well. And what I don't, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty because most of these guys, have, none of these guys have played in a real college game. The Duke guys did that Canada tour and all that kind of stuff. And not to say they've played, you know, a lot of these guys, RJ Barrett most notably, have played in competitive games, just not in that context. And so I don't want to go into real big detail on them, but with somebody, let's start with RJ Barrett, because there are people who maybe have heard his name, but aren't really familiar with, with what he does. The very, very high bird's eye view of the contours of kind of him as a player, what he does well, what he still needs to work on. So yeah, he is just an incredibly polished human being first and foremost, but he's also a very polished scorer. Um, just someone who can get to the rim uh, basically at will at this level uh, and at the prep level. I mean, if you want to go back and watch a game to get an impression of what RJ can do, go back and watch the U19 semifinals that Canada played against Team USA. You know, that team, that Team USA team had uh, like Carson Edwards and like a few good college players as well as Cameron Reddish and a few really, really good uh, high school players as well. Uh, he was playing a year under as well in terms of great. I believe he scored like 38 points against what was like very clearly the big favorite to win the competition. So led Canada to its first ever big youth gold medal uh, whenever they won the next round as well. He is just a gamer in every way. He's tough. He's physical. He's strong. Six foot seven has great size for an NBA wing. The jump shot is coming along. Uh, he works with Drew Hanlon. He's one of those guys really seems to have taken a leap this summer from having talked to NBA scouts that have been down to Duke for practices. Didn't shoot it like amazingly well in Canada, but it's a small sample of three games when he was in front of his home crowd and was, you know, under an incredible amount of pressure and everything. So it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how everything works together with him. So I'm a big fan. I think that he is going to be a top three pick for sure. There are a lot of people that are anointing him as the surefire number one. And I'm not quite there yet, but I do think there's something to him being the number one player going into the year, uh, if not 
that guy that I think is like definitely going to go number one at the end of the day. What I find fascinating about RJ Barrett, and a lot of this ties in with his jump shot, is the idea of if the best case scenario doesn't happen, what does he become? And I like a lot of what Barrett does as a complimentary player. You know, I think defensively he can be capable. He, you know, we'll see, like, we'll see exactly what he, what he can do on that end. Probably not a Duke. It'll probably have to be in an NBA uniform. But there is that potential that he can be, you know, a go-to guy, have the ball in his hands, score, score a lot. I mean, he has done it, as you said, at, at the international level against capable competition. And he was the leading scorer on those in those Duke Canada games, not Zion Williamson. So with Barrett, I kind of want to get a sense of both those things. Like, what is the best case scenario? What is the expected scenario? And then how is his value? But I think the idea that he's not a sure thing is important. And also something to remember, and this gets into the strength of draft class, which I don't necessarily want to get into right now, but you have to mention this with RJ Barrett is not all number one overall picks are created equal. You know, this is, you, you can be the best player in a class that isn't super strong. And that even if you're the unquestioned number one, that doesn't put you at the same level as other unquestioned question number ones that might be in stronger classes like i'm thinking of anthony davis as an example here yeah i think that that's definitely right rj has a chance to like get to that level i think if he really starts shooting the basketball like like if he makes 40 percent from three on like 175 threes or something this year where he's shooting what that would be like four and a half five a game he, he really would be probably not quite on the ad level but like that level below in terms of elite prospect, his reputation around the NBA is sterling. Everyone really believes in him as a human being because like Steve Nash's godfather, Rowan, his dad, like is playing a significant role in running Team Canada, uh, Canada basketball now. People just believe in him as a human being. They believe in his ability to get separation because of just his, you know, polish in terms of handling the ball. He's not like an elite guy in terms of change of direction or change of pace or anything yet he just knows how to really get separation uh using his body and sometimes those guys they struggle like shabazz muhammad was one of these guys um he was like a top three or four recruit or whatever and in high school we found out shabazz was way older than what uh he was stated to be and thus had less physical development left i think rj still has a little bit more physical development left but he's just one of those guys like james harden who knows exactly how to get separation he's coming in with a great baseline of skills and he's really gonna be looked upon as a player who can lead an offense and lead a team to a title because he's shown that the moment doesn't it just doesn't get to him it doesn't threaten him something else i like about rj barrett and it's not to the extreme that luka Doncic is because probably nobody will for a long time but he has spent a significant amount of time playing against people who are a little bit older and more physically developed like i remember when he he was at the hoop summit basically i think it was a year before almost any guys his age would go and you know he didn't look out of place he actually did a pretty good job on that in the practices on that team and the, you said you remember he played up for that for that team canada circumstance and i like it when guys can do that and hold their own i mean not everybody's going to star in those circumstances and that's not the same thing as luca playing in the acb and starring in the acb against men but it's still something i like that shows the guy's competitiveness and his capability because especially when you start in the nba these players are going to be much more physically developed than you are yeah no question uh that that's absolutely absolutely right in terms of the other guys like rj's rj is like one of those players who is going to be he's going to go in the top five i have zero questions about that the others 
I think you could make a case to me that they drop a little bit for differing reasons. Like the, the other three guys that I have in my top four class, I should just mention that now. I've got Zion Williamson, I've got Nasir Little, and I've got Cam Reddish. Nasir Little from what you hear has not been like amazing so far at North Carolina. He's been fine. The reason I like him is that every single thing about his game is translatable to an NBA skill set now, which is remarkable to say about a high school kid. But like you look at the way he shoots the ball, you look at the way that he moves on the floor, he plays both ends, plays with great energy, great verve, really, really good basketball player. And then next, you've got Cam Reddish. Uh, Cam Reddish, man, that dude, I've never seen him play hard uh, in an AAU game. Uh, that is the thing that is very questionable about his game right now he just doesn't know exactly how to uh, bring it on a night in night out basis if he doesn't do that at duke this year it's going to be an issue and and like people said this about deandre ayton last year but like with reddish it's on a different level in terms of his like just not caring on the aau level and, and like not caring in mcdonald's practices in front of nba scouts and everything like that and then the last guy is zion williamson right like zion We know the questions with Zion, like he's not really shooting the ball that well yet. Uh, What position is he? Is he just like the perfect small ball five for the NBA or is he kind of a tweener because his lateral quickness isn't quite as good as what his vertical explosion is? It's it's all a question right now after you get past RJ. Like the thing with the reason RJ is number one is because the floor is higher with RJ. You can make a case that the ceiling for any of these three guys below him is higher, but the floor for all of them is much lower. It, it really is. And I've been struggling with how to convey what I know. And I, I haven't seen as much as I on as, as some other people have, though I have seen him in person in a few different contexts. And the way that I would describe Zion is that at, I believe he just turned 18 if memory serves. And I think that if you like for me, I wear glasses. If I took my glasses off and kind of looked over his basic kind of body, you know, he's he's more cut than this, but he kind of looks in terms of height and, and frame and all that kind of like Draymond Green. But those two players could not really be more different other than that similarity, because Zion as an athlete is a remarkable. I mean, one of the best vertical athletes I can ever remember seeing at, at the age he's at. I, I will even, yeah, take it a step further. I think he is the most like visually arresting athlete I've ever seen vertically in my life. Well, yeah, I remember there were some plays that going back to the Adidas Nations, and I believe that was 2016, where he was, I think, 16 at that point. And you're sitting there going, he's a man. Like, you're just with the, not only the way that he, he moved and all that stuff, but that he was getting up. And it kind of looks like when there's one guy in a pickup game that's just a way better athlete than everybody else. And you're sitting there going, well, why is he here? But he was 16 playing against 17, 18 year olds. Like, that's, that's Zion. But you mentioned his, he was six. That, that's crazy. Crazy. He was 16. That can't be emphasized enough. Yeah, he was 16, and like he was on the he, he was on one of the kind of sub teams because he wasn't on the one with, with the 17 year olds that were more established, like Trevon Duval and DeAndre Ayton, and a lot of names that you've heard recently. And he, I'm trying to remember, there was one other guy on his team that was that was really legit. But I have rosters somewhere buried in all my stuff. But yeah, I mean, he's he's absolutely ridiculous in that. But the question with Zion has always been, and and, and is still, from what I understand, how do you translate that into an NBA context? Because if you take what Zion does as a vertical athlete 
and Draymond, I think, is an under underrated lateral athlete. And also Draymond's instincts are insane and have been for a long time. And that was one of the parts. Can we talk about that for a second, too? Because I brought that up at one point on Twitter recently. Like people keep getting compared to Draymond Green. I genuinely believe this. Like, I think Draymond Green is one of the like 10 highest basketball IQ players who have like ever played basketball. We, we need to stop comparing people to this incredible physical outlier, first and foremost, who was like a plus nine wingspan. Second, to one of the smartest players to just ever play basketball. Like, it, it is, it is kind of irresponsible to me to put the Draymond Green thing on kids shoulders because that dude is unbelievable it also kind of parallels with what happened I always associate this with Michael Red I guess that's just showing my age of, of when I was looking at prospects and stuff where because one guy did really well despite not shooting in college not shooting well in college that okay we can solve that problem Michael Red solved that problem. That doesn't mean everybody can solve that problem. And you're right with Draymond's instincts. And also an element of the Warriors guys, as somebody who has covered all of them their entire career of the, you know, the Draymond, Clay, Steph trio, all of those guys have improved so much since they entered the league on both ends of the floor. I mean, Clay's defensive evolution is remarkable. I mean, he went from being not a sieve, but pretty bad defensively to an all defensive team caliber player for years running now. I don't think he's ever technically gotten those honors, though maybe he has, but he deserves it. I mean, he's he's at that level and the responsibilities they have. Draymond, defensively, I mean, converting his instincts into actual impact was huge, but also even though his parts of his skill set offensively are limited. His jump shot's always been a little bit shaky, even though he's had a lot of confidence in it, other than that one year where he shot like 35%. But he's a, he's an intuitive passer. The ball never sticks with him. Those those sorts of elements. And then Steph is Steph. I don't really need to go into it with him. And so if you're going to say that player X, Zion, whoever else, like that there are Draymond elements, then you're also saying, well, this guy reached one of the best potential outcomes for him. And what would, you know, like a, a 75% outcome for Draymond Green be or a 50% outcome for Draymond Green? Because that's what you're making the bet on. It would, it would be problematic. Like it would be like, there's a, like, I don't feel bad about missing on Draymond Green because most of the time, if you bet on players like Draymond Green, you would fail. And yeah, he does have all these, the, you know, the intangibles were fantastic with him, but there are lots of productive college players with limited physical capabilities and insane intangibles that don't succeed. Yeah, I think that that's definitely right. In terms of specific players and, and like getting into some of the stuff here, is there anyone that particularly stands out to you outside of Zion? That's a good question. I mean, yeah, because I haven't seen much of the like the the Langford Grant Grimes type of guys yet. I, I'm guessing that I'm going to like one of them, but I haven't really seen enough to have that opinion. When I watched Dembuya at Basketball Without Borders, I think he was at Basketball Without Borders, might have been at Hoop Summit. It was fine. Like, I, I mean, it wasn't as egregious as Bassey winning MVP or whatever that was when he was, I mean, he wasn't even close to the best player on the floor every time I saw him there. But yeah, like there's a reason that Seku, you know, they're in the same draft class now and Seku is like universally considered uh, to be higher on the boards. Yeah. And and so with Seku, what I'm excited about is the idea that I think physically he fits in really well with where the NBA is going. We just have to see whether the skill development, kind of like Zion in that, in that element is too, is whether he turns the, you know, basically being somebody who intuitively, when you watch him, you're like, oh, he could defend two, three, four, and maybe even 
maybe even go beyond that. That's a little bit. I, I need to see more of his lateral lateral quickness to to really feel confident in that. But then you're sitting there going, well, okay, offensively, what is going to be his identity and how do you translate what he does well into being a consistently impactful NBA player? Yes, I think that Seku is interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, he's struggled to start the year uh, over in France. He's made the leap up to Division One in France and, and like a actual prominent team. So the fact that he's struggling is not a great sign. His jump shot is something where you talk to people around the league and some people buy into it. Some people don't. I like the fact that he's... Uh, already come over to America this summer and worked on it. I believe he was with Tim Martin down in Texas. Don't quote me on that, maybe. Um, <laughs> but like he's he's really working on it. He understands that it's an essential part of his future career. And again, you're talking about a guy who's like six foot nine with a seven three wingspan, who has perimeter skills, can maybe handle it a little bit, can maybe shoot it uh, potentially down the road. Defensively switchable. I think he does have the lateral quickness to where he can slide with a guy for a couple of steps and then hopefully his other players primary defender can recover probably not necessarily a guy you want to straight switch onto ones yet but he's a player that has a high ceiling if he was in a normal situation like some people have him like fifth right now on their board like i think fifth is probably the highest that i've heard him just right below that top four range um i'm at like nine i'd probably be comfortable with him in a normal draft like top 20 like he's more that kind of prospect and that's that's what we're talking about with this draft. Like a lot of these guys have very significant questions once he gets out of outside of RJ, to be honest. But, you know, the other three guys in the top four, their questions are a little bit less problematic, I guess is the way to put it. But more than that, just questionable to deal with at this stage. Originally, I proposed to you that we would start this podcast with what I consider the, you know, and everybody can have their own definitions, but what I like to use is the criteria for evaluating a good NBA draft class, either before it happens or after, is three things, stars, starters, and rotation players. And so very few drafts are ever strong in all three. There are, we might end up seeing the 2017 draft actually looking good in all three. It'll depend on how a lot of these guys develop from this point. And basically what it sounded like from our conversation, and, and so they're, they are all separate criteria, but they, they're often interconnected. But the reason we didn't start with that is because the answer was really depressing. So like, like stars, I, I genuinely believe that all of the top four guys have like all-star ceilings. Um, I mean, their floors are a little bit lower than what you would hope for. I think sometimes, but yeah. And I, I think what worries me about stars with this class and it's early, you know, I still need to watch a lot of film and I think we all do is that the, there are the ceilings are high, but the, the like kind of the size of the ceiling is a little bit concerning. It's like, Oh, well, if everything goes well, whereas if like 90% of it goes well or 85%, then they're probably below that star level. There's still clear cut positive starters, you know, me, very good starters, all that. But like, I mean, for Zion to be a star, he needs a lot to go right. And I mean, an example here would be, I, I, I've loved what Julius Randle, you know, he's developed a lot and I'm really, really happy with that. Julius Randle's, I mean, I was in love with his star potential as a as a high school guy, you know, when he was Zion's age, partially because his, his skill development was a little bit different and I liked more of what he did. And so it's like, you kind of think about that with Zion, like he needs almost everything to go right to me to be a star, but he has some of the pieces and that's why we love his ceiling. Yeah, like he's so much more athletic than Julius. I think he honestly handles the ball better 
than Julius did. Like he, he's kind of souped up Julius Randle in a lot of ways, in, in all of the negative ways and all of the positive ways. I really still like Julius. I think he's a starting quality NBA player. Souped up Julius Randle's good thing, I think, especially if Julius Randle's three-point ability that he showed in game one with New Orleans is real. If Zion can be the same way, continue to develop as a shooter, continue to develop as a shooter, that's something that is very good for his future potential. In terms of like star quality guys, yeah, I'd say like those four are where I'm comfortable. I consider Romeo Langford, like Romeo is a guy I have at five, like you could throw him in this group, maybe if you're super high on him. I think of him more of like a starting quality guy. I don't really see the shake yet. I like that he plays hard. I like the fact that the jump shot is projectable, although I have some small concerns there in terms of mechanics. Uh, I like Quentin Grimes is another guy. Like Grimes is a guy that I think has real star potential, but I would probably throw him more into the starter bucket because he has problems finishing and shooting uh, consistently right now. And he's like not quite a point guard, but has some real vision that he showed throughout the exhibition and all-star circuit. Like in AAU, I think he averaged something like 1.8 assists per game. But then like during the uh, all-star circuit, he averaged like six or seven. So he's shown the ability to get teammates involved. We'll see how it looks at Kansas this year. DeAndre Hunter and Keldon Johnson, I think I would throw into the starter bucket. They're really, really good wings. Like DeAndre is more of a four than a like wing, but I like the fact that DeAndre really defends. I like the fact that he's working on his jump shot potential. Keldon just plays incredibly hard. He seems like the prototypical like fifth starter wing, in my opinion. After that, I think I would say everyone else is not a starter. Uh, I'd say everyone else is rotation or lower. So like eight guys um, in the 20 to compare that to the 2016 draft, because that's the one I have pulled up on my computer right now. And also that draft is kind of not looking great, to be honest. Ben Simmons, Brandon Ingram, Jalen Brown, Dragon Bender, um, Chris Dunn, Buddy Heald, Jamal Murray, seven guys I would have definitely thrown into the starter bucket. I like Demonis Sabonis as well. I probably would have thrown him somewhere in that range it gets but like like that draft it gets questionable in a hurry i guess is the way to put it so th- th- that's where we're at with this draft it's very similar in depth to the 2016 draft which is quickly not even slowly quickly becoming becoming a question and that was another class that had some guys with high-ish ceilings, but you wondered about whether they were whether they were going to get there. I think Thon is is a fair example there, where like the the ideal concept of him was very intriguing. That's why I was I was pretty much fine with him getting drafted around where he did. Also, a class being bad leads me. I mean, that was why I was so big on Scal going in the lottery was because I thought he had a higher ceiling than a lot of the players that were drafted above him. I still feel that way because I am a believer in Scalabissier. But it, it's it's the I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And then rotation guys, you know, we're we're gonna have to see a lot during this during the season to to establish it because that bar is substantially lower. Like the starter to the star to starter line can be a little bit fuzzy and but the starter and then the rotation line it can be it's it's a whole different kettle of fish. And then more importantly actually the rotation line to the non rotation line. And so that and that's still something we're figuring out with this class of thankfully it looks 
looks you know, like guys like Karis LeVert, LeVert's looking really good. I, I think he's clearly above that line, but then it's the rotation starter line that he's looking at. And, you know, some of those guys are going there. So it'll be interesting comparing this class with that one moving forward. And the other thing is, too, that I want to bring up, like this, we've been spoiled with the last two draft classes, in my opinion. They were both really, really strong draft classes. Like in 2017, I would have thrown over 10 guys into the starter bucket. Like everyone who went in the top 11, Donovan Mitchell, like probably John Collins. I was high on John Collins in that draft. I was high on Jared Allen. Um, Like all of those guys, I think would have been thrown into the starter bucket for me. 2018. Oh, I would have thrown OG in there without a hesitation. Yeah. I was a little bit more questionable on the injury stuff, but yeah, like, you know, OG Ananobi is another guy. Bam Adebayo is another guy that people were high on, you know, in the 2018 draft, I would have thrown basically all of the top 12 into that class. You know, Michael Porter obviously gets very complicated because of his, you know, incredible upside and ridiculously low floor. Some people really like Jerome Robinson, not my cup of tea, but like everyone who went in the top 12, I probably would have thrown in that starter bucket. And again, this draft you're talking, I think the answer is maybe eight. I think like the over under seven and a half. Plenty more to talk about with Sam Vecini, but first a message from Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts is the most convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder your brand of contacts from anywhere in minutes instead of heading to the doctor year after year just to renew your prescription. And it's amazingly convenient. I, as many of you know, I wear glasses, but I went through the whole Simple Contacts procedure and was incredibly impressed with how intuitive it was. I actually made some mistakes on the test and they followed up with me and said, hey, you need to redo this. This is what we're looking for because they want to get accurate results. That's what this is. You're not replacing your periodic full eye health exam, but you're covering a whole lot of ground and doing it from the convenience of your own home. I'm incredibly impressed with that part of it too, because it can be such an ordeal to go to the doctor, especially fortunately, I have more time during my day because of the the schedule covering the NBA. But for a lot of people, maybe you have to take time off work and everything else, but it's also fast. I mean, the the vision test is self-guided, takes less than five minutes. It's reliable because test is designed by ophthalmologists and they, and it's reviewed licensed doctors review it for every test. And also they have the the brands and the type of lenses you're looking for. But I can tell you all about that. But this, the single most important thing is to have you check it out for yourself. So what you do, go to simplecontacts.com slash real GM. And by doing so, you get $20 off your first order, or you can actually even better if you want to, or you can do both, whatever makes you happy, but it doesn't give you an extra discount. You can enter the code RealGM at checkout. So again, simplecontacts.com slash RealGM or that RealGM promo code at checkout tells them you came from us and you can check out a great product and get $20 off at the same time. So it's definitely awesome. Check it out, simplecontacts.com. I also want to tell you about betonline.ag. I'm absolutely thrilled that basketball is back, real, regular season NBA basketball that counts, and we are about to enter the first full week of the season. Remember, the season starts on Tuesday, so this is really the first full week. There are a lot of really interesting games, both on national TV and on League Pass. Considering the Lakers have been a lightning rod already this season, their game against Denver on Thursday is going to be really exciting. There's also a Minnesota-Toronto game, so that's Jimmy Butler against Kawhi Leonard that I'm really excited about. And Bet Online is a great way to make interesting games even more interesting or to make a game that you're watching because it's on and you're around a little bit more compelling. And so you go to, if you want to do it, you go to betonline.ag and use the promo, promo code podcast1, P O D C A S T O N E, for a 50% sign up bonus, which is absolutely fantastic. 
If you are a football fan, there are a multitude of options there, and it's a great way to engage yourself, maybe maybe your friends, you can, you know, bragging rights, everything else like that. So basketball, you know, World Series is about to start, so you can check that out as well, and numerous other events, betonline.ag has all of that. So again, betonline.ag, and then the promo code is podcast1, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-O-N-E. So something else I wanted to to go through with you a little bit is the teams that are worth watching. I mean, Duke is the most obvious one for people who are more NBA fans. The game to start with there is actually their opener is is a neutral site game. It is neutral site, right, against Kentucky? It is. It's in Indiana. I'm going. Nice. And so, so that's going to be in early November. Then they also have a game against Indiana, which is exciting because Indiana is where you mentioned Romeo Langford. I, do you know, I, my expectation is that Langford's going to guard RJ, which would be pretty fun. Yeah, uh, I think that it's a good question because Romeo uh, Romeo is a lazy defender, I would say, particularly in ball screens. But Archie is very defensively conscious. Archie Miller, I'm sorry, the Indiana basketball coach. He's very defensively conscious, very, very smart at what he does. So maybe he will get the most out of Romeo. And Romeo shows some potential to really handle himself on that end because of his lateral quickness because of his length and because like he generally does play pretty hard so again another guy where i'm like we'll see i'm intrigued we'll see how it goes questionable who he guards yeah that's that's definitely a question and so i mean so the big teams to watch won't be shocking to people i mean duke is ridiculous who does north carolina have other than little north carolina is kobe white i am considerably higher on kobe white than i think the general like consensus of draft people is um some scouts really like him some scouts think he's a multi-year player in north carolina across the nba at least really really good shooter six foot four kind of combo guardy size and play style in, in terms of where his weaknesses are very skinny maybe 170 pounds right now at six foot four i think he has like an even or negative wingspan but a guy that can really create plays he plays with a with a certain tempo when he's trying to score the ball that i really like and he is also someone who just kind of creates space and is improving as a point guard. Um, he was seen more as a combo throughout his time in college, but or in high school. But in college, like he's going to have to play point because North Carolina has no one else to play point. So we're going to get like to see a lot of him early on. Well, that's exciting. And and sometimes guys getting a lot of leeway, a lot of responsibilities early can be it, it can be informative. And you know they don't always they don't always swim. And sometimes that sinking is not a big problem, but it's still there. I mean, so I mean, Indiana and Kansas have Langford and Quentin Grimes, but I off the top of my head, I can't really think of anybody else. They have that they have players that are capable college players, but that I'm saying they're going. Oh, NBA fans need to be watching out for player X. Yeah, sure. Fire guys. No, Indiana has uh, Jawan Morgan, who's a senior who will be all Big Ten, uh, has a chance to be drafted if he can start shooting. He does literally everything else. He just has to shoot it or else he's probably not an NBA player. Kansas has a few guys. Kansas has a freshman coming in named Devin Dotson, point guard who will probably start as the lead and share those duties with Quentin on offense. Uh, Kansas likes to play a lot of two point guard schemes, as you guys probably saw with Devontae Graham and Frank Mason over the years and some of what like Tyshawn Taylor played with, for instance. Um, they do uh, really, really like to 
have multiple guys on the floor who can create plays. They also have Yudoka Azabuki, who, is, who was at the Combine last year. Um, I, I don't really think of him as an NBA player. He has no chance to guard in space whatsoever, but he's a good pick and roll dive man. Like he's, he's kind of like shorter Boban um, in a lot of ways. Like if you told me he became like a situational five to 10 minute a game guy who wins you like three games a year, I could, you could maybe sell me on that, but I'm not real sure about it. And then finally, Kansas also gets in the Lawson twins, the or not twins, Lawson brothers, Diedrich and KJ. Diedrich is the better prospect. He was the combine in 2017 uh, and is formerly, was formerly at Memphis. Uh, he averaged, I want to say like 20 points, 11 rebounds maybe like four assists, a block and a half, and a steal and a half a game. Like, really, really effective player in a high-level conference in the AAC. Uh, expected to compete for the Big 12 Player of the Year Award this year, given what some of the reports are. Out of practices, Kansas. So, uh, Dietrich Lawson, interesting, probably not quite athletic enough to be like a potential lottery pick either. So, I think the way that I want to, uh, maybe not end this, we'll see how, how far it goes, but the next thing I want to get into are, there are a couple of players in this class, incidentally, the two I'm thinking of are both centers, that are intriguing for NBA contexts, and let's start with Bol Bol. I mean, Manute Bol's son, there are elements of similarity for sure between the two guys. I mean, Manute, I wrote about him in my book because he was one of the players that got me fascinated in basketball in the first place because he was the super big guy that preferred to be out on the perimeter offensively, but still blocked a bunch of shots. Do you see those parallels as well? Even to a further extent in regard to the way that he fits the modern game of basketball, he is very, very gifted in terms of his ability to shoot it can really, really shoot the basketball. Sometimes I think floats a little bit out there, depending on the day that you see him. He is someone that is either really, really good and like shuts down the rim entirely and scores 20 points and makes three threes. Or he like kind of floats out there and isn't all that impressive. The body is obviously a pretty big concern. He's still very, very skinny, but he's like 7'2", has a 7'7 wingspan. Like everything that you're looking for in terms of being able to shoot and protect the rim, he has it. The rest of the game is very concerning to me. He's not much of a passer, uh, not much of like a short roll guy, not much of uh, a defender out in space, uh, not much of a pick and roll defender. Uh, so he's... He's in many ways like what everyone wants from a prospect like this, but also has like the significant flaws that everyone looks for in a prospect like this. Very, very polarizing around the NBA because, again, some guys have really seen him and he's played well. Some guys have seen him and it just hasn't quite gone as well. He maybe more than any other player that I'm familiar with in this class and off the top of my head, anybody in the 2018 class could actually benefit from falling in the draft. And what the reason I say that is because then a team is not as invested in making him a starter right away or anything like that. They can just develop him, use him in spurts. I, I think he, his weaknesses will be a lot more tolerable as a second unit center, just because you're not going to exploit, you're not going to exploit him as a protector and his advantages offensively are going to get more of these guys out. And yeah, there are some of the, like that's where the dinosaur big back to the basket centers are going to go. But really, I mean, yeah, those guys are going to bully him a little bit in the post, but other than the best of the best, I don't think they're going to like, that's going to be how your offense is going to run. Yeah. I mean, like, 
there's just so much that I don't understand with his game. <laughs> just be like, I've seen him. He's, he was out here in Southern California. So like, I've seen him a bunch. And again, like there are days where he looks like a top five pick in this class. Like he looks like he should be in that top group. And then there are also days where he looks like he's not a first round pick at all. So the consistency playing hard night in, night out, and the consistency of protecting the rim and doing his job night in, night out, that's the thing that scouts are going to look for most from Bull Bull. I was trying to think about what what circumstance I would be most interested in, like like what teams would be a really good fit for where he might go in the draft. And one I thought of, granted, they would need to have a better year, but Boston with the Memphis pick would be a way that he could he could get in a, a spot that was fortunate. I'm trying to think about any any other ones where it's like, okay, they have they have pieces in place and they wouldn't push it too hard. He'd be fat. Go ahead. You know who would make a lot of who makes a lot of sense to me just given the way that their defensive structure works is Portland. Um, they tend to. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. They tend to filter everything kind of toward the middle and allow their centers to just like kind of actually protect the rim uh, in, you know, shots at the basket and shots from the mid range, like, you know, painted area. So I like that schematic fit quite a bit, and they need a guy who can pick and pop with Damon CJ. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. That was better than the one I was thinking of. I was thinking about him potentially playing in LA with LeBron. Like that would be fun, just in terms of getting bowl the ball in places where he can succeed. But what they ask him defensively would be a, a big challenge until, unless and until the Lakers figure out the rest of the rotation, which they will in time, but they haven't yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I, I like that Lakers fit as well, depending on if they really are serious about switching everything or if they are more just like kind of saying that and we'll see what happens defensively with them going forward. And if Luke is their coach going forward, I hope he is, but we'll see. I hope he is too. And Nate and I talked about a little bit on Thursday night slash Friday mornings dunked on about how I liked a lot of the elements of Luke Walton's approach with this team, like the offense. It wasn't necessarily that it was complicated or nuanced or anything like that, but I think it made sense for where this team is going, but actually incidentally maybe made less sense for where they are because they signed all these guys that are ill fits, you know, like Rondo and KCP was just bad last night. If if he's plays better, that will be a problem. I'm thinking more of Lance Stevenson, who, you know, it just doesn't really make as much sense with this team, but yeah, Lance and Lonzo were real bad last night. Yeah. And, but I think that if you think project out, okay, they get a year to filter through some of these veteran contracts, like the, the filler type stuff that they did get in another really good player, whatever position that is, is going to depend on who says yes and then cogent pieces around them that the Lakers have the fundamentals of being uh, a really good team. They just need that, need that turnover, need that development. And actually, I think that in certain ways is a, a, po- a positive way to think about the first year of a LeBron era because there's so much figuring out that has to happen. That was even true when he went back to Cleveland and they kind of knew what he was. They still needed to, to piece together, make some personnel moves and everything like that. But what makes the Lakers situation so different and was the biggest surprise of their offseason for me is LeBron James is turning 34 in about two months and he there's reason to believe that his prime or that his post prime will be better than most people but it's also not going to be permanent I mean we don't expect that and so I'm sort of happy that the Lakers are getting this figure out year because I think it will lead to a better final product but 
it's also concerning that they didn't that Magic and Palenka didn't understand that somebody like Lance, or maybe it was just that LeBron had too much input. You you never really know. Like this is maybe the parallel is like Dwight Howard saying, "Oh, you should sign." I'm trying to remember who that was. Like Dwight Howard advocated for the Magic to sign somebody. They signed them and they weren't good. Like that sort of thing. Or, or like LeBron advocating for Shabazz Napier getting picked. Yeah, it's certainly like what Shabazz Napier is now would actually be a pretty good fit with LeBron, but it just took a long time. But right. But so those like I don't know how Lance got there, and I'm not sure we'll get an honest answer for five to ten years. So it's not really predictive in that sense. But I want to see, you know, so so the question is, were those just kind of well, we have a we have a gap year, and so we're gonna we're gonna go with it at that we're gonna go with it for this year, or was that a mistake in evaluation? And that will be important. The biggest reason for the gap year is the team that you cover. Like, <laughs> if you're gonna do a gap year. You have to do like, I guess I should say not if you're going to do a gap year, but I think they're just trying to wait out the Warriors like this Warriors team very easily could look entirely different next season. Like depending on what Draymond Green's season look like, looks like, do they potentially try and move on if they think they're not comfortable signing him long term? What happens with Clay Thompson's free agency? It seems like to me, he's the most likely to stay long term because he just really likes it up there, but he's still a free agent. And then there's Kevin Durant. Like what is Kevin Durant going to do? It sure seems like he's going to play the field. So like, I think that I actually like the idea of just kind of taking a gap year, being patient and seeing what happens because they had no chance of winning the title this year, regardless of who they got. Like, even if they got Kawhi, I don't think LeBron, Kawhi, and Vets and the young kids are beating Warriors. So just take your time and kind of let things fall where they may. Along those lines, I think the other part that led into the gap year was that a lot of the most logical additions to this Lakers team are going to be available as free agents in 2019. And I completely understand the rationale of wanting to see, you know, not wanting to give up meaningful assets for a player that you might be able to sign anyway. And yeah, the Lakers have bet on their ability to sign free agents and failed a few times in the recent past, but they have LeBron James now. And so that's fundamentally different. And so it's entirely possible that Kawhi Leonard is less interested in them now that they got LeBron because it's not going to be his team or that maybe Kevin Durant is less interested for the same reason. But all they really need is one. And then theoretically, they could either use that player plus all the other good young guys and LeBron that they have, or they could move some of those young players for a third player. Either way really works. And all they need is one. Yes. That at this point, they don't need two anymore. And like that, that one of, I'm working on a series of pieces for the athletic about the 2019 offseason. And that's what makes them distinct from some of these other circumstances. Like the Clippers, I think it's in some ways more likely that the Clippers get two max guys than one because that's the sales pitch. The sales pitch is going to be you get to play with the other guys. And like, I like Tobias Harris a lot. Uh, but I don't know that, like, if I'm Kawhi Leonard, if I'm the only, you know, if it's Tobias Harris, me and then let's say like a fifth, 10 to 15 million dollar a year guy. I don't think that's a strong enough sales pitch. But if it's me, Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, and then minimum guys and middle of exception guys, well, then you might have something. Maybe, maybe you can work with that. And so that's their situation. And I also have no idea what to think of the Knicks right now because basically they're, they're relying so heavily on being the Knicks 
And I mean, I certainly their front office is less tumultuous than it was when Phil Jackson did it. But when you look through the moves that and, and I like what they did in the draft, to be sure, but you haven't gotten those signs other than maybe hiring Fisdale, another guy who I, the, a lot of people like him personally, but I still don't know what his identity as a coach really is. But so if if you're a single, you know, a single max player committing to the Knicks, you better think Porzingis is going to be, you know, he has has a lot more there. Because it's going to be so hard for the Knicks to add on top of it, other than assuming they keep their draft pick, unless they can clear a second max spot, which is possible, but very, very difficult, especially now that they move Noah or now that they stretch Noah. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely right. In regard to the Knicks, like the only thing that keeps mattering is like, I mean, you hear like the Kevin Durant thing, like this is this is like public information now. I think that like who who said it first? I think maybe Pablo Torre said it first on like high noon, but like it's, it's a thing that's out there. Like Kevin Durant in the Knicks, like might consider each other this summer, which on the face of it is totally crazy. It's insane. Why would Kevin Durant go to the Knicks? But there's like something to it. And if he goes to the Knicks and they have Kristaps Porzingis and they can find another guard. And, you know, if you get Kevin Durant, you're probably trading Kevin Knox and Frank Nilakina for another star anyway. So like, I don't know. It's not that crazy to me. I'm I'm cool with it. Yeah, the Knicks. I think they are the biggest difference between ceiling and four of anybody you know, like of the teams in this free agent class off the top of my head. Because if they don't get anybody, they'll be fun, but it'll it'll take a while. You know, like and I worry about the combination of like whether Knox will be ready by the time Porzingis is. You know, where where Porzingis is, let's say when Knox is ready, like all that sort of stuff. And yeah, they're, they're a real challenging question. And also I've been thinking a lot about, and I, I just wrote a thing about this. They'll probably be up for the athletic, I'm guessing early next week about Kyrie and Kyrie's putting out there that he intends to re-sign with the Celtics because I think the most important impact there is that it tells other free agents, at least for the time being, you shouldn't plan on me being a part of what you're doing. And that is extremely important to the idea of the Knicks getting two max guys because Kyrie was the logical second one for basically all of those scenarios. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Like, is is Jimmy Butler likely to sign with Kevin Durant? I don't really know. Like, I don't really have an answer to that. Uh, I don't think those guys would like playing with each other. I think they both want the ball too much. I think that's probably right. I, I, I think you're substantially more okay if you're either one of those guys with Kyrie being your second star than the other one of those two. Yeah, and the, I agree with you. Like The guy that could really unlock a lot of this is how you think Kemba Walker is going to age. Because I am of the belief that like Kemba Walker is probably one of the 20 best players in the NBA, maybe like 25 best players in the NBA. He is absolutely unbelievably gifted offensively, but you have to believe that he's going to age well in these like small guards. Once they lose like even a step of their quickness, it becomes really hard for them. So like if you buy into Kemba aging well, he unlocks a lot for the Knicks and he'd be a New York guy coming home. Uh, if you don't buy into Kemba Walker, it gets a lot more tricky. It does. And the, the it's a strange point guard class. And point guard seems like one of the more natural fits for this. I mean, especially because the middle level exception is going to get you very much at that position unless somebody takes a big pay cut. And I don't expect anybody to. And also the Knicks, part of the reason they have the most variance 
is because their timeline shifts dramatically based on who they sign. I mean, they're the players that are on their team right now, this looks to me more like a team that their best years will be three, four years from now. I mean, Knox, Mitchell Robinson, they're a long way away. Porzingis is earlier than that, but not so far, depending on how he looks after coming back from this torn ACL. But if they get Kevin Durant or Jimmy Butler, and it, it goes even further if they get Kemba, their window is now. Like their window becomes 2019 to 2021, probably. And that is incredible. Like the the, the, the amount of change that that would be. Uh, the closest example of that is probably the Lakers. I mean, LeBron completely transformed that for them eventually. I mean, I don't think he's necessarily done that yet because that's kind of what this gap year is. But that is an, a lot for a front front office to have to deal with. Before we get out of here, I'm going to switch subjects here. And I'm doing this on your own show, so I feel awkward doing it. But is there any like, but you're here for the draft is why I do this. Is there any like random, like lower end prospect that you're interested in? Well, so, you know, I love Nikhil, but we don't really need to talk about him. Well, let's see. So I've seen a little bit of PJ Washington and I find him intriguing. Just what? Yeah. Lindell Wigington. I'm a little bit interested in him. If he can shoot, yes. Well, I mean, Bowen is 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 a different thing. I mean, just with the story of him playing in Australia and, and how that's going to work out. Yeah. Oh, have you seen, like, because I didn't get to watch that much of Kansas last year. Like, is Udoka Azabuki, like, what is he as an NBA player? Is he just more like one of those guys who's going to get invited to Summer League every year? Yeah, I kind of mentioned him in the Grimes section. Like, I, I, I get the appeal of him. Um, I get why NBA scouts like are interested, but I think he's more like a Boban than anything. Boban got $21 million from the Detroit Pistons. So like maybe that's a thing, but like, I think he's more of like a five to 10 minute a game guy. If he's that who like, maybe he can change games. Maybe he can be like a pick and roll dive guy who is just like physically so much stronger than everyone on the floor. I'm skeptical beyond that. Yeah, I, I, so I mean, I saw Samanich at something, and he was. Well, hold on, real quick. I just thought of a question. I do want to talk about Lucas Samanich. Go. Would you consider Bo like if Boban entered this draft? Would you take him in the first round? You mean current? You mean current Boban or? Yeah, like current Boban, who is what he is right now. Like, is that guy worth a first round pick to you? Yeah, I think he is. I mean, you would have to use him more regularly than teams are to this point. It's a little bit strange to me that everybody, like he's now been on a, a series of different teams with a series of different coaches and a lot of coaches I really respect. I mean, Popovich, Stan Van Gundy, and Doc Rivers. And all of them have used him as more of a novelty than as a regular backup center. And I actually think... Been a bit unlucky in terms of who he's been behind, but yes. But I And I think that's giving him short shrift. Like, I, I'm not sure that it would work, but I think that he's played well enough that he deserves that opportunity. And yeah, some of it is the, the, the sample issue. I mean, this Clippers team has Gortat, Harrell, and Boban. And so, yes, that means I think they should trade at least one of them. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's a weird, it's a weird circumstance. And also, like that is trading Austin Rivers for Gortat is also a stranger decision in that context because we always knew they could bring back Carroll if they wanted to. He was a restricted free agent. They already had Boban on there, and there, there could very well. Let's let's phrase this diplomatically. There could very well be off court reasons why having Austin Rivers away from the Clippers is a good idea. But as a value proposition, that was a very weird trade. I agree with that. Just trading small for big in general never really makes sense for me. But I guess like they have a backup. They have a backup guards all over the place. Like Shea Alexander is awesome. 
Yeah, that team is crazy deep. It, that team, it, it's the Clippers are so fun this year. Intellectually, I mean, well, for a lot, they're fun for a lot of reasons because they could trade away like four guys and still be not not like a playoff team, but still be competitive. And what they do with those, what they do in those trades would be kind of hard to discern at this moment. But like they could move Patrick Beverly and just fill in with other guys and they would be. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's probably right. A couple of random guys I want to call out for the listeners um, to watch for who I think are not quite getting the publicity they deserve right now. Kevin Porter at USC is a freak. Um, that dude is a one and done guy. I think uh, most people I think are on most like NBA executives are on that shift right now, but I think he's a one and done a guy like Isaiah Roby at Nebraska kind of combo forward took me a while to like really buy into him, but he's a freak athlete uh, can shoot it a little bit needs to really improve on that side of the ball. And I also want to call out one of my personal favorites, uh, Matisse Thibel at Washington. I believe he became the first player in college basketball history to post his or like, you know, recent college basketball history since we've been doing analytics uh, to post like a five steal and whatever his block rate was. He was the Pac-12 defensive player of the year. He can also shoot it a little bit. Like, I think he is a real three and D wing type guy. And then finally, let's talk about Lucas Samanich because he's interesting for a variety of reasons. And so Samanich, I kind of see him as dancing between four and five, you know, like the type of player who probably should be a five, but will end up being a four due to positional scarcity and everything else. But well, also due to the fact that he's not going to be able to protect the rim and provide the defensive value he needs on the five. Also true. Yeah, that's very true. And so Samanich, comfortable in his jump shot. You know, is he playing for Lubyanka again this year? Uh, he is playing for, he's playing in Slovenia. Uh, he's playing at, yeah, Lubanya. He wasn't there last year. He was, where was he? He was in Barcelona's system. I forget. He was in one of the Spanish team systems. Uh, he moved to Olympia Lubyanka this summer where he's on a team with like uh, Yusuf Sanon, who was drafted by the Washington Wizards this past year. Who else is on that team? There are a couple of other like actual prospects on that team. Yeah, so it'll, it'll be harder, you know, because he's, he's not coming over to watch him. But now with Synergy and everything else, if you want to watch the film on him, you can. Still plenty more to talk about with Sam Vecini, but I want to take a moment to tell you about Pluto TV. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. And it's great because free can mean a lot of different things in the modern era, but they really do push that because Pluto TV never asks for a credit card and you do not even need to sign up to watch for free. So a lot of the hangups that can happen with, you know, the red flags that can happen with things that are listed as free, but just come with other costs, let's call them. Pluto TV does not have that. So it was the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies for free. You can download Pluto TV for free on all of your favorite devices today, including your phone, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, PlayStation, Apple TV, and smart TVs, wherever else you stream. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. Also, I have a message from TrueCar. Hey there, diehard. Here's some football facts even you might not be aware of. First football game was played in 1869. In an average game, the ball is typically in play for only about 11 minutes. And finally, pizza consumption rates go up during the week of a big game. Okay, well, you probably knew the last one. Well, here's another fact you might not know about, which is also really useful, especially if you plan on tailgating. 
TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid, so they know if they're getting a good deal before buying. They are also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. This is something that Nate and I talked about on Dunked On this week that I think was a was a, a worthwhile conversation. And it came out of the blue, but it, it sort of didn't because it's something that I've thought about a fair amount over the last few weeks, which is more as a basketball fan than as somebody who covers basketball. Would you rather, for whatever rationale you want, would you rather have Kevin Durant stay on the Warriors or leave the Warriors in 2019? Um, huh. It's a good question because like there is a fan, even like the historical stuff does matter to me. Like the fact that if Kevin Durant stays on the Warriors, that is going to be genuinely the best team to ever play basketball. And it's going to be really hard to argue with it, I think. But then like as a dated, like for a big picture, I would like him to stay. But like as a day to day basketball fan, I think it gets a lot more competitive and it gets a lot more fun if Kevin Durant goes. So like, I kind of don't care in a lot of ways. Like maybe for my day-to-day enjoyment, sure, like leave. So if I should be living in the moment, as most people believe that you should, yeah, let's screw it. Let's say he should leave. Go. This is totally the type of answer you would expect from me. But the other element that we have to consider here is what he leaves for. Because if he just goes to a team that, like, let's say the versions of the Knicks that I think are more likely than the best case scenario of the Knicks would be awesome. They'd be really fun to watch. But like, let's say they don't also get Kemba or something like that. They get maybe somebody who's a little bit lower, lower rent than that. I don't know exactly who that would be. So if he ends up on a team that is not a a serious championship contender, then that would be disappointing because Kevin Durant's an amazing player and seeing him play his early 30s because I think Durant will age well not in you know not insane I don't think he'll age as well as LeBron because nobody does but right like he, he might age better than any player who is not LeBron entirely possible and also because Durant defensively I think defensively in many ways he makes more sense as a power forward right now but he can easily slide into that position full time, could put other wings around. I think it's kind of like what happened with LeBron, where you now ideally would have a, another wing around LeBron who's doing those primary assignments and you let Durant freelance a little bit more defensively and then still do his thing offensively. Th- that is another parallel between those two guys. And so the Knicks, you know, I, I'm sure they're hoping maybe Kevin Knox could be that guy. I, I don't see it defensively. Maybe offensively, they could be good complementary pieces. I actually kind of like some of that fit. But, you know, and I'm not as interested as I think some people would be in a Durant-LeBron pairing at this point in their career. Yeah, if they did that four or five years ago, it would have been absolutely insane. And I also think there's a a non-zero chance that they would have just completely killed each other and it would have blown apart in a year or two just because of how those guys see themselves. But at this juncture for both of those guys, as they're kind of aging stars, but still stars, I don't imagine that being as interesting as people think. And I could be wrong. I've been wrong plenty of times before. Yeah, it just really depends on how you think KD is going to age. If you think he's going to age at a rate that like continues to make the team that he's on like a title contender every year, which I... 
tend to believe. I actually do. I, I really think that regardless of the team he plays for, that team will be in the mix winning 50 games every year and will at least make like the conference finals every year, especially if he's in the East. But I understand like the concern. There are real concerns about how players age for sure. So yeah, I think I think that's a big part of the Durant conversation is just where he ends up. And can, can, can we talk about something real quick too? Kind of going back to the Lucas Omnich thing. I wanted to bring this before. Have you and I ever talked about like the theory of the four and the five becoming the tweener now? Like the players who were four fives as opposed to the players who used to be three fours being tweeners? We I don't think we've talked about it too much, but I agree with you that that is becoming partially due to switching and partially due to the offensive roles changing, that that really is where the nexus is. And I think that's better for the league because you can slide those guys situationally more than you can with the three and the four. Like the three and four, it, you have to kind of decide a pairing and go with it. Maybe you can have a three-man rotation there or something like that, but usually teams just run it as rotations. But you can have a guy, not everybody can pull off what Quinn Snyder's doing with, with Derek Favors right now. But I think you can have a guy who's maybe more of a natural five, plays there like 10 minutes a game, but then still gets plenty of minutes. Bobby Portis is actually kind of doing this. Yeah, oh, Bobby Portis Hive is strong right now. I've I've been on the Bobby Portis Hive for years, and I am excited that my early stock investment is coming through on Bobby Portis. Yeah, it's really interesting because, like, I think Bobby is best as a five. I think he should be a five. I think that a smart, intrepid team with you know maybe some cap space to spare this summer, uh, or maybe that is over the cap because they can acquire his restricted free agency rights, would do well to acquire Bobby Portis at this trade deadline whenever Lowry Markinen comes back and whenever the Bulls start to go toward uh, Wendell Carter because, oh man, Bobby is good. He definitely gets buckets, that's for sure. And Bobby Buckets. This Bulls, this Bulls team is going to be so bizarre because like now the ecosystem is a because Wendell Carter is the most interesting to me of their the most significant of their big men because of his defensive potential and I saw a lot more from him in summer league than I expected which is awesome but they still have maybe I'd still go Lowry but I understand why they still have Lowry marketing but so then you're sitting there you're going okay they have those two guys well then they're they also have Robin Lopez a totally capable NBA big man Jabari Parker and Bobby Portis. And so they have all that stuff and have no natural small forwards on their entire roster. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre. They have Chandler Hutchison. Chandler's my guy. I was going to ask you, what, what do you defensively, what do you think his, I think of him more as a two than a three, but I could be wrong. You know him better than I do. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre. They have Chandler Hutchison. Chandler's my guy. Okay. How is his, how is his lateral movement? Pretty good. He can move. Yeah. He can move. Okay. Can, the two things on the Bulls right now that I want to talk about. We're going to get an epic Zach Levine FU season right now. <laughs> like whether, like how productive that FU season is going to be. I don't know. Like, uh, look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that like Zach Levine's FU season is going to lead to the Bulls winning like 35 games. But we are going to get a season of Zach Levine going out for 25 a night, like almost for sure. And He's going to do it because everyone pissed and moaned about his contract all summer. And that dude, he deserves a lot more credit than what he gets for being someone that is considered around the NBA to be like a ridiculously hard worker. Like a lot of people look at him, like think of like the fashion stuff and think of him as like someone who, you know, the indifference defensively, like might not really care all that much. That dude gives a shit. And that guy is going to be awesome to watch this year. And it's been exciting to see him get to something closer to actualized offensively. I mean, he's still 
not looking good defensively. And with Levine, there are players, actually, incidentally, the Lakers have a bunch of these guys who I was high on when they came, went to the draft. I soured on them, and then maybe they're going to turn back the other way. And it's always funny when that happens because you're kind of torn between two things. And I try not to focus as much on what other people say about me and about my work, but it's like, they're like, oh, you hate this guy that you turn around. It's like, no, I want, if they if they end up being good. And so with Levine, I was higher on him going to that draft than most people because I thought his offensive ceiling was crazy. I also thought defensively he'd be way better than he's been, but that's a separate conversation. And so with Levine, he just can, he can create separation as long as he can have a decent jump shot and have confidence in it, can go in that direction. And also, I mean, it, this is going to be that season for Levine because the circumstances are absolutely perfect for it because Chicago is going to have shots to be taken and they're not going to play any defense whatsoever. <laughs> they're not going to play any defense. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> I, I've tried to think of a team that has their distribution when we, so basically Chris Dunn, very capable defender. I don't think he's elite yet. He's one of those guys who has really high tools, but he needs to get their game in game out. But I, I mean, Chris Dunn, the the people you believed in him more than I did. That defense was a significant part of that. Wendell Carter, I think his defensive ceiling is, is very high, smart kid, good physically, better physically than I expected him to be. So you have those two guys, then Markinen, I think he can be a capable functional piece. He showed me a little bit more defensively. And then Zach Levine and upside down question mark. If they use Justin Holiday, then that's better. But like, this team is going to throw out, if they want to, they can throw out some of the worst defensive lineups we've ever seen. And we should talk about Jabari because that was the other one that I wanted to talk about. Oh boy, I'm pretty concerned. Is <laughs> someone who really... <laughs> oh, you mean J- Jabari Mayo? Like, honestly, that I, I start, when I was watching the game last night, I started thinking about that, about... O- granted, the OJ Mayo had lots of other reasons why, from from what you hear, why things haven't worked out, and that, and ho- hopefully, and it doesn't sound like any of those things apply to Jabari. So thankfully, and so there'll be a, a test case, let's say, of those sort of those things. But my big issue with Jabari at this juncture, and this can change, it, it won't take a big change to shift this dynamic pretty severely, is that what he does really well is valuable but not essential and what he doesn't do well is catastrophic yes also are we sure what he does well is super valuable (laughs) well if he can what what i'm happy about with hoiberg moving him to the second unit granted once they move bobby portis there bobby portis will get a lot of shots but if he can create reliable offense for himself and other people and he's going to have to do that when he's playing with cameron Payne because cameron Payne is awful and so if if jabari can do that even if it's on the second unit he's a useful nba player i don't think my instinct and this is something that i disagree on with with other people is that i don't think he can do that against starters i don't think you know he can against the best of the best unless he gets a whole lot better from this point and he can but he has to but he can do it against second units because most teams don't have enough depth at the forward spots to throw everybody who's good enough to defend Jabari Parker should probably start unless there are catastrophic weaknesses that they can't shoot at all my concern with it all is that Jabari plays himself into incredibly inefficient shots like for such an incredibly intelligent human being like Jabari for whatever he is as a basketball player, is a very socially conscious, very smart, very emotionally intelligent human being. And I can't understand why he is so unaware of what his game is and how he needs to adjust it to fit better into the modern NBA. I thought that maybe like 
the Chicago thing would be a light bulb. Maybe it would be something that would turn it a little bit. Like, you know, the first, first stop didn't work. Now I got to really look at this, take a deep look inside myself and really figure things out. I really want Jabari to succeed because I think it's, I think he is genuinely like a terrific human being, a terrific ambassador for the game of basketball. And I think he's going to do like incredible things after basketball ends. But man, like just the, like he'll mid post and then like take a step back, contested 18 foot jumper. He will catch it at the elbow and take like a sidestep 16 foot contested, like fade away. He'll take like post up fadeaways. It's like it, it, none of his shot distribution makes sense. And I thought that Fred Hoiberg would have a chance of like kind of playing that out of him a little bit because Fred really does care about shot distribution, regardless of like what the concerns are with Fred as a head coach. It, it like based off a of game one, at least th- there was nothing there because like you can at least tell tendencies, even if like results don't necessarily play up, you tend to be able to tell what a coach is trying to do. Like with Phoenix, you could tell that Igor Kokoshkov, he wanted to run a more ball movement, heavy style offense. You could tell with the Milwaukee Bucks, they wanted to run spread offense where they would post Giannis quite a bit. They'd run some pick and rolls for Giannis and then he'd spray out to three point shooters. With Chicago, I don't know what that is. It's leading to Jabari taking just the worst shots imaginable for what his game is. And it's hard to see that dynamic changing, at least this year. I mean, having Portis out there will will shift it a little bit, but they have so little guard depth. I mean, Denzel Valentine is probably going to be shouldering a, a big load when he comes back from his issue. I, I believe it's an ankle ankle issues that he that he's dealing with. So yeah, Chicago, they're the team right now that I, since I'm, I've become so much higher on Wendell Carter after how well he played. And, and there were elements of his opening night. I mean, he got into foul trouble with Joel Embiid, but you could still see those signs of like, okay, he's going to figure out a lot of these things out but it is going to even like even if Zach Levine becomes the player that we all hope that he is offensively and maybe a little bit of that defensively they're still going to need a lot of help and I don't think they have the right front office to figure it out so I feel like it might just end up being they might be a, a kind of a better version of the Kings which is funny because of the Zach Levine part of this where you just are waiting for those players to be in another circumstance yeah, I agree. And the problem with it all is that uh, Jabari's in that different circumstance now. And it just didn't, he didn't figure it out. <laughs> or hasn't yet, at least. He's still young. So if we look more broadly, uh, let's focus more on, on the preseason. I mean, so of the of the guys that have been recently drafted, doesn't have to be this year, but recently, is there anybody that really is standing out to you as maybe being better or worse than you thought they would be? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, uh, we have to, I'm going to have to think about this go to like 2017 2018 draft I, I liked what i saw from zach collins like even last night and like you know a little bit of preseason as well the fact that like he's closing for portland already is a really good sign for them uh, i think that they really needed that uh, malik monk is someone who closed the year really well last year for charlotte and like nobody noticed because charlotte was already out of it he looks i think really good in the preseason and looks really really good uh in game one like what they can do with him and kemba walker is really important to how things go bam at a bio i guess that we kind of know that he's good now already but some of the offensive stuff that he was doing in the preseason was really impressive uh like he was grabbing and going and like he had one play where he finished with like a euro step uh off of a grab and go in space 
Like that, that's stuff that nobody expected him to do in call or when he was at Kentucky. That's a good sign. I like what Harry Giles did. I wasn't sure he would be this good this quickly. He was very, very good in preseason, I thought. And I'm astounded by Jarrett Allen's growth. He was again another guy that was really good last season, late in the year. He just looks like he looks like a starting center right now. And I wasn't sure he would be that already. Um, he was someone that I liked and someone that I thought would be a starting center eventually. But I'm surprised that it's when he's 20 years old in year two. Yeah, I really like Jared Allen. And he is a, a really good example of the idea that if a player is not in that real elite tier of centers, that you can find guys a little bit later. And I mean, we both really liked Jared Allen for where he was picked. I think we both thought that was one of the better selections in that draft. And I'm so excited. One from this year's class, I've been really excited that Hamadou Diallo has been better than I expected defensively. I mean, the physical capabilities were never, ever a question for him. And he's still going to need to shoot to be much of anything. But I like that he's been competitive on that end. And that's really going to be a big part of what he does for for OKC. And then another one who you've been high on, basically you're the guy who got me to watch him with any regularity is Monty Morris. And Morris is going to have a real opportunity with Denver to establish himself while Isaiah Thomas still works his way back from his hip stuff. Shout out Amber Rose, man. Shout out Monty Morris. We, we love them all. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else from the last couple of classes. I mean, I was I hadn't seen any of him at OK State, but the fall of Jawan Evans is pretty stark. I mean, he's... Yeah, he was someone I really liked, and I hope he gets latched on at some point here. Oh, another one. It's really disappointing that he got the plantar fascia issue. Oh, I think you're going to say who I was going to say here. Go ahead. But I think Derek White might win most improved player. Yes! Yes! I think there's a very, and I don't like second year guys winning it, but he is a a, a really good fit. For, I mean, for what he is at this point, I'm not saying he's a great player, but he's such a great fit for playing next to DeMar DeRozan because DeRozan's going to have the ball in his hands a lot. And while I am deeply critical of DeMar DeRozan's place on a good team on a big stage, DeRozan can really help Shepard along an offense that doesn't have great pieces around it because he can get to the foul line. He can do more with the ball in his hands than a lot of people think. And Derek White's a logical complementary piece there. And so I'm excited for when he gets back. You know, Bryn Forbes can hit more shots, but he's also not as good defensively. And I mean, we saw Jeff T go absolutely buck wild against the Spurs. And I think a portion of that was because he was being guarded mostly by Bryn Forbes and Patty Mills. So getting Derek White back will really help. And then we've taught you and I have talked about him a lot and Nate and I have talked about him a lot, but Josh Hart is legit. There does not need to be any ambiguity there. And he is a wonderful, wonderful fit next to LeBron James. He's stronger than most guys his size. He had a couple of really nice finishes around slash through Yusuf Nurkic last night. He doesn't fear anybody. He can hit open shots. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't think he's just like a, a necessarily a knockdown shooter for the rest of his career, but he's at least capable and you have to guard him. And that's the more important threshold. Oh, I think he's a knockdown shooter. Like, I think he is. Yeah, I think he's that. Um you think he's like a, like a 38 to 40%? Like, I think he should be there, but I'm not, I'm not saying it's a guarantee. Like, I'm not all the way there yet. But I love him. And defends well. You know, not not prototypical. Like, he's not, I don't think of him as, as a star, but as, an, as a, a starter that you can trust and you can throw in the lineup 
to be there this early, even though he is a little bit older just because he played all those years at Villanova. I mean, for point of reference, Josh Hart turns 24 this year. So he is older than a lot of those guys, but it doesn't really matter if you're that, if you're already good, you know, that's, it's more about growth. And he grew a ton between his rookie year and the early part of his sophomore year. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely right. Uh, Josh Hart is, he's a pro man. That dude is a, he's a fighter. He is someone who plays both ends of the floor and he's the kind of guy that stars want to play with. That's a big thing. Like to me, he is the player out of that, like Ingram Lonzo Kuzma group that is least likely to be traded because he is super, super cheap for the next three years. And again, he fits with any star that you get on that team. Like you get Kemba Walker. He fits. You go get Kevin Durant. He fits. Jimmy Butler. He fits like everything. He's such a simple fit with everything that they're going to do that I'm, I'm a big, big fan of what he is able to bring to the table. Well, I was going to say, this is a point that was brought up to me by Dave Dufour on my podcast today. He says that he thinks Josh Hart is the best player of that like uh, four-player group right now, Ingram, Ball, and Kuzma included. Do you agree with that? Huh. I think he's the best player for this Lakers team, but I'm not sure he's the best player overall. I mean, Lonzo is a ridiculous talent. I mean, even without the jump shot stuff, I mean, his defense and rebounding and passing and, and everything else. He, he I mean, I think Lonzo was the second best player. No, third best player. I forgot about Donovan Mitchell in the 2017 draft class last year. Oh, wow. That's that's strong. <laughs> I think I'd have to run through the numbers a little bit in my head. That's just just me running through it. I mean, because there were a lot of guys that were destructive, and I think he really did did add some value. And remember, that also doesn't include Ben Simmons because Ben Simmons was not drafted in 2017. But so... Right, yeah. Like, he wasn't as good as Lowry last year. Hmm. I'd have to really think about that. I like a lot of what Lonzo did. I mean, but then you also run into the problem of the replaceability factor that, you know, they're that that's the, and I wasn't really factoring that element of it in. Hmm. I'd have to really think about that. But like, was was he as good as OG last year? Well, OG was asked to do so little. Like OG did, OG did what he did better. But yeah, that's that's the thing. There's a value to. So this is something uh, Matt Moore talked about this on on Real Jam Radio last week about Russell Westbrook. And the idea being that even if you don't necessarily like the way a player does it, there is value to taking on a larger responsibility. And there is also the argument that players who don't have that could. And and so you get into those questions as well, that it could be in terms of minutes, that could be in terms of role both ways. But there is value in just taking basically taking a big bite and chewing as much of it as you can. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. But getting back to OG, that's actually the point that I was getting into too, was you and I talked about, I mean, we did a post-draft podcast in 2017. And one of the things, I, I don't remember the exact phraseology we used, but one of the things we discussed was the shock that OG and Josh Hart both fell as far as they did. And the idea basically being that even if they don't end up becoming like great dominant players, they're still going to really help teams. And some of the players who were drafted above them will will have very good careers. But I mean, you look and I would probably start that list at 15. And it's just there are just so many. Yeah, I it's hard because I think that there were teams that didn't like the knee scans with him and are questionable long term is why. So like, I don't think anyone doubts that like in terms of quality, he should have been like a top 
18 pick. Well, but I mean that let's let's compare OG and Harry uh, and Harry Giles. I love the story and everything like that. I mean, well, that that one's bananas. Yeah, like to do that is silly. I agree. And but but I mean, so you could go through various examples. Of this. I mean, TJ Leaf. Even even if TJ Leaf reached the the 90th percentile of his outcomes, I, I mean, the, the the expected value is probably. St- I mean, the 90 percent is better than a lot of what OG could do. But I mean, that's the that's where you're getting to with him. DJ Wilson's another one. Justin Pat. And other like the, the 16, 17, 18, all of those guys, all of those teams, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Indiana, they could all use a guy who is six foot eight and super switchable defensively, either due to scheme like Indiana. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that too. Um, well, not only could all those teams use OG, all those teams could use Josh Hart. Like, think about think about if the Bucks had whatever their point guard, whether it ends up being Bledsoe or Brogdon. I mean, this is still an open question. Middleton, but then they also had Josh Hart, and then they had Giannis and whoever they end up deciding is their best center. I mean, they looked really fun with Brock. that team would just wreck people. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how. Shout out to Bomani Jones for this. We'll see how White Dante goes. He looked good. I was very impressed with his confidence on the jump shot. And there were he had some defensive foibles, especially guarding Tony Parker. But I'm not surprised that a rookie guard had trouble defending these quick guards that Charlotte put out there. I mean, he had a little bit of time on Monk, too. If, if there's one thing you do not have to worry about with Dante DiVincenzo, it is confidence. That dude is maybe the most confident player to like enter the nba recently (laughs) whether or not it's right or wrong it's definitely true i don't know if you got did you get to see any of mobamba's first game because i didn't i heard good things but i'm gonna have to catch him at a later point i did i like the way he played offensively i like the fact that he uh showed a little bit off the bounce actually a little bit like there's a play where he faced up uh kelly olenic at the foul line and like jab stepped and then like straight blew by kelly with a play like kelly we can talk about Kelly being an issue, but like Kelly's not slow for a center. So the fact that he was able to do that with pretty e like he was pretty easy for him to be honest, uh, is a good sign. I think he knocked down a three. That was good. Uh, defensive rebounding wasn't great. Uh, that that's a concern for me. I thought he did a solid job protecting the rim. Maybe not necessarily with his reputation uh, or up to his reputation, but I thought he did fine protecting the rim. It was a good good start. It wasn't like. You know, Alonzo Trier dropping 15 points and dunking all over Atlanta, but it was a good start. Not everybody gets to play Atlanta in their first game, so that is a unfortunate for a lot of these rookies. But it would be so exciting if there were all these arguments and discussions well-intentioned about how to rank the top four centers in this class. I'm not counting Bagley because he's a small forward, clearly not a power forward or a center. But Aiton, Jaron Jackson, Wendell Carter, and Mo Bamba. And so different in, intelligent minds disagreed on how that how those guys were ordered and i mean carter definitely pushed himself up in the rankings by how well he played in summer league it would be awesome if all four of those guys ended up just being good and so it's not as much about ranking them it's it, it kind of gets if it gets more into a darren williams chris paul discussion rather than a chris paul whatever other bad point guards were drafted around chris paul discussion yeah i mean like look <laughs> they're all really good <laughs> Like that that's what I kept telling people going into that draft is that to be a center, to be taken that high in the draft, you have to be an awesome prospect. You have to be so good that it's worth taking you that high. I think they're all gonna be good, to be honest. Like even Wendell Carter, I'm a little bit lower on Carter than what most people are. I, I really want him to succeed. I think he's a very thoughtful human being. I, I think he's very smart in terms of the way that he uh 
speaks about defense. You can tell that he is a high IQ basketball player on the floor. I, I love guys like that. And I am just a little bit concerned about the way he moves on the perimeter. Like, I think he's going to be a starter is like his worst case scenario. I just don't know if he has like the upper echelon, like ceiling that some of these other guys do. I think all of Bamba, Jaron Jackson and DeAndre Ayton, I think they're all making all-star games. I'll be honest. Like, I genuinely think they're all going to make uh, all-star games, plural, in their career. I also enjoy that they all have meaningfully different strengths and weaknesses. I mean, I mean, Jaron Jackson, even though he played primarily power forward at Michigan State and is largely doing that at Memphis so far, I love his defensive instincts. I think what I'm still seeing from him is eventually he'll be a good center. He just has to have this kind of apprenticeship with Memphis until they figure out everything else that's wrong with that team. Aiton, the rebounding for him is the big one. Yeah, that's the big one for him. DeAndre Ayton, Nate and I covered the first game he played on the Twitter NBA show, and it was a great example of you could see what every part of him. Nate, Nate went hard on him defensively. I thought I was. Oh, he there were there were some possessions like so there were some possessions that were just abysmal. Like there was this one that just really pissed me off where. It was a drive, and he not only did Aiton not try to stop the driver at all, when he was, let's say, four feet away. Is it the one where he's on the weak side and, like, yeah. Yeah, where he was on the weak side. He was four feet away. The guy drove 20 feet, and he didn't take a step. But not only did he do that, he got ducked in on by DeAndre Jordan, the guy he was ostensibly focused on by not going to the driver. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, God. Like, that that sort of play is concerning. But with Aiton, what I do like is that I think his intention is there, which is important because he has physical capability. So if you're missing two of three, you know, like intelligence, intelligence slash instincts, however you want to find that, physical capability and intention. If you're missing two of the three, you're going to suck. But if you have two of the three, you'll probably be okay. And if you have three of the three, then you'll probably be good. And so with Aiton, you and I have talked about him going back to when he was like 17. It's always been about which of those boxes he's going to check. Yeah, I mean, with he's he does have the like total like brain fart plays defensively that stand out. But he does like he does a good job in space defensively like you watch him cover pick and rolls like he's pretty good covering pick and rolls for a guy especially that's like 19 years old and a center he does like a when he is in position he does a really good job of protecting the rim there are definitely like the reactionary instinctual questions that like look you you go back and you watch the tape and they look like a train wreck disaster right they look awful but i'm okay okay with that right now for the most part with him and hope that it comes along at some point because i see the flashes in terms of what he can be like remember again like this is a guy that was all pack 12 defense last year he was very useful on that end for arizona um the bad plays were really bad no one's gonna deny that but i i just i think he gets shit on a little bit too much defensively We'll see how long it continues. I, I, the hard part, and this gets into sample bias and all that kind of stuff, is that typically the players who have the type of bad plays he does are the exact type of players that don't get better. But it's not universal. You know, the, it, it can be corrected. And so I, I think that's what, like, I, when I was watching some of those plays, what really concerned me is just, like, an example there could be like JaVale McGee, let's say. And where you could tell at moments in his early Washington career, it's like, holy crap, this guy just doesn't get it. And he's been able to forge a, 
you know, a, a solid career out of it. I would say he is underperformed relative to his physical potential. And DeAndre Ayton is miles, miles better as a prospect than JaVale ever was. But that's sort of the idea. The, the other, like, I, I'm thinking of, like, Gerald Green is another example there. Or, like... Yeah. Well, the opposite side of that spectrum is DeAndre Jordan, right? Like, DeAndre got, I, I in my opinion, very good defensively. Like, I know that the numbers you know aren't elite but he yeah he, he i would say he got he got a lot better he was overrated it, it, this is actually a good thing to talk about briefly is that there's a difference between being overrated and being bad and i think deandre jordan was overrated and good and so yeah yeah like doc rivers was talking about him as like defensive player of the year or whatever he was never that but like he was probably one of the 10 best defensive centers in the nba he'd be right around that area i'd have to go back and really think about it and, and deandre though like Granted, going back to when he was at A&M, and I think I even saw a little bit of him when he was in high school, I thought I saw the wheels turning a little bit better for him defensively than with, with Aiton, but I think that's a fair comp. And it's just going to take time and development. I mean, he there is no reason to write off DeAndre Ayton as a defender now. It's just that if these data points continue, it's a little bit concerning. And what it gets into, and we don't have a ton of time left, but a point that's important to make here is we're going to learn this maybe with Carl Anthony Towns too. And Towns, I think, has had, has shown way more defensively like when he was in college than Ayton did. Yeah, there's the all Pac-12 thing and all that. But I just, when I saw Towns defensively at Kentucky, I saw a better guy. But this is more an abstract concept, but it's an important one, which is how good can a team be if their center is way better offensively than defensively? And the answer right now for me is, I don't know. But it, it but if you want to be a championship team, and not every team is, you know, there are only, let's say, four or five teams in any given year that are championship contenders. You're going to need a lot of good talent around that kind of player to make it work. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that right now. I wish I did. If I, if I had the answer to that right now, like I, I would probably be like a number two or a number three in a front office. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, and, and I think there's an important thing to consider here also that is, well, championships are how a lot of success is defined and, and there, you know, there is no right or wrong there. It's just how you do it. Front offices, fan bases, ownership can do that further. And, and a lot of those elements matter, but that's a really bad way to evaluate a lot of players because they're not going to be in that standpoint. And also because you're often not, com- you're comparing them to similar things. Like Dion, if it ends up being that DeAndre Ayton is not a good enough defensive center to really be a a huge part of a championship team my reply is so what like yeah that affects what you would trade to get him that affects what you would pay but there are lots of other things that he can do which are incredibly valuable and of course that's not saying you know i'm not closing the door on those possibilities this is just a hypothetical and the most pressing example of this to me is Damon CJ, where it's like somebody's like, people are like, oh, you can't win a championship with Damon CJ. And the answer to that might be yes, but Portland can still do a lot of awesome things. And it would, it would have taken something Herculean for them to be a championship contender anyway. So what's the point? Yeah. No, I think that's definitely right. Uh, I don't know. Like to me, there is something to winning. Like there's something to keeping a competitive team competitive for as long as you can um, in taking shots and taking risks like that. Well, and, and, and also it takes a lot to tear down. Like if you traded one of Dame or CJ, even if you traded them for nothing that helps your team this year, let's say theoretically you just got fair value in draft picks. They're still not going to be bad enough to get one of the best players in this draft. This is not trading Chris Paul and being bad enough to get Anthony Davis. Like they still have too much talent. And so in those circumstances, the idea of trade off everything that's not sailed down is, is more difficult, but also impractical. Yeah. And 
it's hard because like I fall on, like I want to compete for a title, but I think that too many people don't realize how quickly those decisions crop up during a rebuilding process. Like people talk about like how these, I guess these decisions whenever you're losing are easier because they have less stakes. Um, You're in asset accumulation mode versus trying to compete for a title. I get that you have a bit more room for error, but the thing is that if you make a flaw, if you screw something up, then if you do something that is problematic, then it sets you up for failure down the road. Like Portland during their rebuilding phase or like right after their rebuilding phase ended, I guess they decide to sign $200 million worth of guys that are not worth $200 million in uh, Alan Crabb and Evan Turner and etc. you know, and that sets them down a road of mediocrity. These decisions come up quicker than what you expect them to come up. And I think that it's worth remembering that when discussing these rebuilding teams, um, there's a reason that Sacramento has not gotten out of the basement. It's because they keep screwing up the rebuilding phase. Eventually, they'll get to a stage where they're on the next part. But these decisions are not easy and these decisions come quicker than what you think. They really do. Uh, we'll have to end it here. But thank you so much for taking the time. Anytime, Danny. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at The Athletic. You can listen to his Game Theory podcast. I am infrequently on it, but he has a lot of great guests. And you can also, of course, follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Really enjoyed this episode. Lots of different things to talk about. And since Sam and I are comfortable enough with each other, I love when he initiates and asks some questions because it gets us to talk about things that I probably wouldn't have thought about discussing. And generally, those are worthwhile conversations to have, at least in my opinion. And it's my show, so I guess my opinion counts. And excited for the real season to start. I like to take a couple weeks before getting really into the nuts and bolts of how these teams are looking and everything else like that, just because small sample size, everything else, especially when you're watching the whole league. So I have kind of a vision of how I want to do the next couple weeks. Pretty excited about it. And you can, if you want to support the show, you can subscribe, download every episode. That's great to do. You can also, of course, spread the word however you see fit with social media. And also leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing. That really does help. And if it's Apple Podcasts, even better. Or if you want to push it to another level, if you don't use Apple Podcasts, you can review it both places. And that just gives us a boost. And really what it's about is having it so that more people can find this. And the more people listen to it, hopefully the more people like it. And then we get more advertisers and then I can do more episodes. And as I've said, there is always a possibility if we get enough ads, get enough support, get enough listeners that I will increase the frequency of this. Maybe not to twice a week all the time, but maybe to opportunistic twice a week and then so on and so forth. So you can also check out my work, The Athletic, of course. I That's where a vast majority of my writing is going to be this year. I will have work for Real GM as well, of course. And podcasting, Dunked On, Nate and I are doing five times a week. 15 and 60 is back on Sunday night slash Monday morning, depending on when you listen to podcasts. That we will be doing the Eastern Conference for the first one. We're doing a little bit of a different format because we don't have enough film yet on a lot of these teams. So we're answering questions, but that'll be pretty fun. Looking forward to recording that and, and doing all that later today. So if you have any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. 
things like Twitter, I mean, you can do that, but it's it's just so ephemeral that if you want me to read it, the best way to do it is to send email. And my promise to you is that if you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it because that's the absolute, you know, like that's uh, it's mandatory for me if I'm asking you to do that. And I do read your feedback. I don't always respond. I try to, but there are times either if I get to it late or something like that, but I always read it. It's very important to me. It goes into a separate place and I make sure to read every single one of them. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet, all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash Surface Pro 8. You want to go. Yes, go travel, go explore, go find a new city, go reconnect with friends, go have fun. That's why we created OnGo, the trusted rapid COVID-19 self-test. OnGo gives you accurate COVID test results and peace of mind in just minutes. So anywhere you go, you know. You'll know if you're COVID-19 free and you'll know you're protecting loved ones. OnGo is readily available at letsongo.com, Amazon, Walgreens, or Walmart.com. Use promo code ONGO15 for 15% off at letsongo.com today.